welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles and I are talking to Michael Stolercheck, who is an expert about many, many things, actually, but among them, supply chains, shipping, logistics, things that I know nothing about. And I'm so that makes me particularly excited to have this conversation. Uh, I feel like this is one of those where I'm going to learn as, as much as uh, the audience. And that's great. Um, so, Doc, why don't you why don't you introduce Michael yeah, and give so, us a little bit more insight um, about what's going yeah, so, on here today? Yeah, M- Michael and I uh got in touch and I was, I guess when I was writing, uh, the intention economy and, uh, um, and we, we actually, we ran into each other first at, uh, at, at Esther Dice's conference and hit it off there. Um, Michael's one of the world's authorities on, on supply chain logistics, whatever it's called this week and whatever combination of things it might be called. And, uh, he wrote this book called logical logistics and, um, which I sourced in the intention economy and, um, and we've talked a lot about it. And I, I think even, I mean, since we met, I think the world has become far more logistical than it ever was before and will continue to become even more so. And I think what's most interesting about this is that almost nobody knows what the hell's going on who's outside the business and nobody could be more inside the business than, than Michael. So, so I, I, I want to start by observing two things. One is that um, we see more trucks on the road than ever before. And I think that's, if you're on a major highway, especially if you're like going on some of them that are like Interstate 95 goes across the George Washington Bridge through New York City. And and it sort of sphincters through an enormous amount of traffic. And especially on the upper deck, which is the only place that's allowed it's like all trucks. You are in a river of trucks moving in both directions. At the same time, in any place that's flat across the country, near highways, near airports, um, near near railway centers that most people don't see, but you can observe from above, are not just many acres, but square miles of these big, low, I mean, low like two-story anonymous buildings that will have a name on the corner. Maybe this is Prologix or something. And most of the time it just says 5214. And who knows what that is and what's going on inside there. Some of them have, most of them have loading docks along the sides. It's just this, it's perforated by uh, truck bays that can, trucks can back up into that. And at the same time, a lot of us, especially in the more urban parts of the world, but even here, I'm, I'm 50 miles outside of Indianapolis, I have a reasonable expectation if I order something, I can get it tomorrow. And these are things I'm not going to find at Home Depot or or Walmart, some small part of some kind that's specialized. I'll still, I still get it tomorrow. How? What's going on? So it kind of gives <laughs> us the high level and we'll just dig into Magic. it. Magic. Because people <laughs> need to know. How is it they are so quickly satisfied? <laughs> well, uh, hey, first of all, Catherine, Doc, thanks for... Um, invited me to come, you know, kind of, uh, cut some things up, um, with, with you. And just let me start out by saying, um, I have always, since I first met you and I think it was 2004 doc at the PC (laughs) forum that Esther had out, out, uh, in California, one of the last ones actually. And, um, from the very beginning, I, uh, in talking with you really, enjoy your perspective, enjoy the way that you can get down into the minutiae without losing, um, 
the perspective of how to share and how to collaborate and, and how to, you know, educate without pontificating. And I, I think that's a, um, you know, just a perfect example of what you just walk through, which, um, you know, makes it easy for people like me um, to, to share on the podcast. And I am by, by, I am by no means an expert. I, I kind of, um, kind of feel sometimes a little bit like Zelig that I've been in, in involved in situations over the course of my career that have just placed me in the right, t- right place at the right time, uh, especially as it relates to logistics and supply chain and global transportation. So to your point, um, there are just a massive amount of, um, facilities um, that we no longer call warehouses. Um, they're, you know, they're not static anymore. It used to be you build something and then you go store it for a year and then let it, you know, trickle out your, your, your dock doors at, at a particular uh, clip, um, whatever the, the consumer or the market will bear. Um, you know, now these, these large facilities are flow centers. They're, uh, they, they are buildings that, um, if they're holding things for longer than a season, um, and that season is essentially three or four months, um, something's wrong. Uh, they're they're not making money. Um, they're actually starting to eat up money. If you're if you're manufacturing something even in China and bringing it into the United States, if it sits too long, it becomes um, a weight on your balance sheet, and it becomes something that then has to be discounted and and sold at a at a, at a loss. Um, so organizations have over the course of the last, uh, I would say, you know, twenty some years, really focused on flowing the product at pace. So anything that you do order or, you know, just as you talked about in, in, in your book, uh, the attention economy and, and something that you, you know, used that, that we talked about, about having an empathic supply chain um, is, is really important um, to how things have evolved. And, and I think, you know, the, the one issue that, that sometimes tickles me about those large uh, facilities is they're now competing with the large data centers and, and data vaults that, you know, uh, Google and, and uh, Microsoft uh, and, and, the, the re- and AWS are all using for, you know, for their data centers as well to, to actually move um, um, information through, you know, through the pipeline, just like a supply chain. I kind of, I kind of talked about how I started out when ships, trains and, and planes, you know, back in the, in the late eighties and then, and then moved into, uh, uh, boxes and, and, and cartons, um, instead of containers. And then, uh, I started getting into when I worked for Microsoft over in Vietnam into mini displays and microchips. And, and then I came back to the States in, in 2016 and worked for a tech company that, uh, dealt with, uh, data backup, uh, d- um, data resiliency, uh, disaster recovery and things like that. And I was moving ones and zeros through the supply chain. And it's the same issues, uh, whether you're shipping, uh, patio furniture, that's giant, or whether you're pushing ones and zeros through, you know, it's speed, it's capacity, it's reliability, it's how much it costs. And very honestly, where's my stuff? is the, the most important thing now to the, to the consumer. So there almost is an expectation now that you put an order in for, um, you know, trash bags. 
that uh, at Amazon that you can get them the next day, uh, regardless of what the size is or what you know what what you're supporting, or if you're you know looking at uh, cosmetics or um, other uh, healthcare things. Um, next day delivery, same day delivery in a lot of uh, of the larger uh, metropolitan areas now, and so you know when you talk about empathic. That, that's when these organizations really have moved into a whole different world when they can build something in, um, you know, in Tianjin in China and, um, and, and then literally have it at your doorstep um, in, in a moment's notice is, is you know, mind boggling. And, and, and I think, you know, all the steps in between, there's a lot of great ways uh, of, of moving product uh, in the supply chain. But one thing that has definitely stopped is just the mad pace to manufacture it as fast as you can ship it as fast as you can get it to a warehouse and then let it sit and rot so there's a a lot more uh, data analytics there's a lot more uh, machine learning there's a lot more um, use of, of of data and information and buying patterns that help organizations forecast, help organizations um, make micro orders and 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 build things uh, straight straight related to what the consumer will buy. So you can pace the supply chain. So it, it's not hurry up and wait five different in five different nodes of that supply chain it's methodically moving through it it's um it's sometimes it is fast and other times um you know you you put it on rail or you put it in a truck just as you say and um they can take the slow route they don't have to they don't have to um go hell-bent for election to to get to a warehouse to have it wait so it's flowing product now and i think that's the that's the biggest issue and that's driven by the consumer so I love talking about Amazon in a lot of different contexts, right? There's always something to talk about, right, with Amazon. Um, and uh, Doc and I, uh, Amazon comes up frequently in, in conversations about privacy and, and, and data and, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing because Amazon knows so much about us, mm-hmm. which then helps them to know, you know, who might need, uh, you know, uh, trash bags with overnight delivery. Um so, so I was thinking about this the other day. I you used to be able to download, you know, a, a year's worth of uh, Amazon transactions, right? If you're doing taxes, and let's say you have business and you're you're calculating expenses based on you know stuff that you've bought at Amazon. Now you can't do that anymore. They've changed it actually in the last year. But you can download your entire data history with Amazon, which is fascinating. I highly recommend everybody go and look up how to download your entire data file, um, you know, collection of files from Amazon and and check it out because this is all, this is the exact kind of stuff that we love to talk about that, you know, this, there's so much data being collected on us. It's so, you know, at all times. And, but we, we like to talk about the downsides, but you might say, and this is something I struggle with personally, the upside is all of this convenience and great service that you get out of it. Um, and again, it's a struggle. I think about this kind of constantly because I am a heavy user of Amazon and, and mm-hmm. Amazon delivery and, and shipping. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how about data collection and how that the massive amount of data that Amazon has access to informs all of this, un, you know, unseen magic that that yeah. kind of keeps keeps the world spinning. Yeah, and I, I think um, that's a really good 
question, Catherine, and, and there's no s- simple formula to that, but I, I, I'll, I'll couch it in, in the sense that um, every facility that, that is operated, whether it's by Amazon or a third, third party, um, you know, is, is a dynamic facility. And back in the day, you just put stuff away in a, in a slot in a rack and then pulled it where, whenever it was ordered. But now with uh, the ad- advanced diagnostics of warehouse management systems, you know, with uh, point of sale systems in, in what Amazon does is uh, they do multiple things to profile these orders, profile the consumer, um, and dynamic slot um, their their facilities. So they know um, we're coming up on we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and there's going to be uh, a lot of you know um, uh, kitchen utensils, um, turkey basters, uh, oven mitts, um, accoutrement for the for the table, and things like that. So they're going to move that product that. Uh, sold really, really well last year. They're going to move it closer to the dock, closer to the to the physical uh, picking locations that people go to to fulfill these orders and match up uh, all of this Thanksgiving uh, product uh, really tight and, and, and really close to their pack stations, to their, their uh, outbound docks and things like that to make it easy. So, you know, once we get into the third week of Thanksgiving, if somebody, you know, melts, you know, melts a, you know, a particular set of uh, serving tongs or something like that, that they can reorder them and get them that day. Um, and then after Thanksgiving hits, it's the exact opposite. Um, they're going to move all that stuff away and it's going to go back to the, 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 the hinterland of, of each of these facilities. And they're going to start moving in wrapping toys, uh, all the things that are, you know, very popular at the time uh, to create this dynamic slotting environment to where you can actually uh, quickly pick, pack and ship and get it to the consumer. So they're, they're taking all of this uh, data information in, in actually, um, configuring their supply chains to, to help support it. And it kind of goes back, you know, another little history um, lesson, um, you know, from Doc and I's time, you know, at the PC forum, um, you know, the former uh, editor of Wired Magazine wrote, wrote a book called The Long Tail. And it used to be you would sell um, many, many units of one thing, um, which was the way that the supply chain worked and and it evolved now in in the 21st century to sell uh, um you know one thing of many and and be able to track and trace you know the the consumer driven economy to to talk about what's popular at the time, not necessarily how, how much you order uh, and that minimum order quantity uh, that that drive that used to drive the business is now not the same because of all of the data analytics that we have at hand to, you know, not only flow the product to the consumer, but it's actually uh, flowing the product inside the four walls, flowing the product inside of, of a company's supply chain, you know, not even just talk about Amazon, but, you know, talk about, you know, all of the 
Clorox products or all of the Gillette products that move through Amazon, um, it has its own microcosm. It has its own uh, interaction now, depending on the season, depending on um, new products, depending on uh, the order profiles uh, of the consumer. And then they set up the profiles of the warehouse to, to make it easier, less steps, less time, less you know, uh, backbreaking work to move uh, product through the supply chain to the final mile. So it's interesting to me that um, that this is all about flow, um, and our, our, but yet the image we have a static image of this thing, and we think of it as a warehouse. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and warehouses used to be these giant buffers for stuff. Mm-hmm. The assumption was static rather than live, exactly. rather than yep. moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the sort of mental image that we have is the stuff that's just on shelves rather than all kinds of conveyors and movement of goods through this whole thing. Right. And, and I almost get a sense of, it's almost like there's a giant organism and there are fluids moving throughout this giant organism that are, that, that may pause here and there, but, but for the most part they're going, I mean, we, we experience being an organism ourselves, but we tend to think we're static, but we're not, we wouldn't stay alive if our heart wasn't busy moving corpuscles exactly. through every cell that we have. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a sense and hope, hope the listener gets a sense of visualizing how this works because the visible parts of it, even a truck is a, is a container. It's a closed container. Mm-hmm. Um, and, which, and that container may have been on a ship two hours ago. It may, be, Absolutely. may have been, you know, at, 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 a, at a port or something else like that. But this stuff is all moving all the time. And here's, a, here's an interesting twist on this. <clears throat> Back in the, really the 80s and 90s, the hot thing in retail was, was called just-in-time. And the idea was, and it was an early stage of this, right? And probably wasn't as computerized as what we have now. But what, you, what the store wanted to have was minimal warehousing in the back. They wanted to put, basically the inventory is what you see on the floor. You see a little bit of that when you go into a Costco. It, it's basically a warehouse, and it's called a warehouse. Mm-hmm. With but you go there next week, and almost nothing that's in the upper parts of that, you know, uh, of what you see is is still there. It's all been moved oh. by forklifts and by people working at night. Right. Um, and a lot of this does happen at night. It happens out of sight. I mean, all of FedEx and UPS um, shipping happens overnight between. Uh, these hubs and one of them is here in Indianapolis and mm-hmm. uh, for FedEx and all the action is at night. I mean, if you're near the airport, you hear, you hear planes coming and going into the wee hours. Uh, there are others in Memphis and Louisville is for uh, UPS. There are a number of these around the country, but they tend to be more toward the center of the country than the edges of the country because you want to be able to come and go within several hours. Exactly. And, but he, here's the thing, what happened to compete with that in retail, um, Nordstrom kicked butt because they had stuff on hand. You know, you went in there to buy some shoes. You know, what size do you want? We've got lots of sizes in the back. And that's actually because it still had the soul of a, of a shoe store. It's one of the things, in fact, I wrote about in the intention economy. I don't think it was really that intentional on Nordstrom's part, but it allowed them to survive longer in a changing retail environment than, than did some of the other large retailers. But they all got killed, and all of the downtown malls got killed, and all of the 
you know, the gallerias and the malls out on the edge of town got killed. And actually working in an office got killed because I think this is a supposition on my part. You can flow as a worker better in your house than you can in an office because you don't have to transport your butt into the office when you could, in fact, be working out of your house. And that, it feels much, yeah. It feels much yeah. better wearing shorts than uh, you know um, having to wear a pair of slacks or something or jeans. So yeah, I I, I agree. You know, it's interesting, Doc. Uh, your your um, your point on on um, retail space uh, versus uh, back of the house space. Um, the the evolution of that really um, is a little bit different than the just in time that that kind of was created. Um, you know, by the automotive industry and some of the large manufacturers right back in the day with their OEMs, you know, delivering uh, parts and the like directly to specific areas of the production line versus uh, having them stored near the production line. So I I think, you know, absolutely Nordstrom was killing it, but they were also, that's why you also paid, uh, you know, one and a half X or two X, you know, to buy a pair of shoes in Nordstrom because they they had them all in the, in the, in the back of the, of the store, which was, um, you know, square footage rate was a retail rate, not a, not a warehouse or a distribution rate. Right. And, and I can tell you that the, one of the organizations that I worked with, um, which was purchased by DHL, um, when I, when I came back, uh, from the Czech Republic, uh, working for Maersk and I joined DHL and in, in really in the time when we first met, um, you know, one of the things that, that we created was the concept of the remote back room. And uh, one of the biggest purveyors of that, who ultimately went out of business as well, maybe due to Amazon um, and some of the, the legal battles they ha- had with them, is Toys R Us. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys, either if you guys remember, but Toys R Us had a massive, massive retail uh, location in Times Square. Right. And, right. and that location in Times Square had no back room had no uh warehousing or any uh storage area in in that whole facility it was all retail um and and so every almost every inch square inch of that facility there was something that you could buy and we actually managed a um distribution and flow center across the river in Secaucus um that Hmm. um, you know during regular parts of the year made five or six trips a day, usually overnight um, to, to that facility and restocked from, um, you know, their point of sale would tell you how much inventory drew down for the day. And then it would, it would alert us to um, pick and pack a certain amount of, you know, uh, Star Wars Legos, uh, a particular, you know, skew or something like that of Star Wars Lego we would pack that, put them in, you know, um, rolling um, uh, basically baker's racks, load those in a truck, take it into the city, going through the, the very roads that you were talking about at the top, and um, roll that thing off right to the right to the um, point of sale location, replace those uh, Lego toys uh, in that point of sale location, take any type of dunnage or anything back, and then put it back in the truck and, and leave. During Christmas time, we were making anywhere between 24 to 26 deliveries a day, uh, 24, 24-7 to that, to that facility because they were uh, – that retail um, 
location was just selling up a storm. So, you know, that flow of product was going across bridges, rivers, multiple uh, trucks in multiple hands. Um, but the only thing that, that that location did was sell product. And it, they were not paying for, um, you know, folks to stock their shelves. They weren't paying for extra space to hold product. Um, and we had to really be able to be proactive um, and not reactive to the point of sale. So if things were hot, we had to make sure that, that we were in sync and aligned with them to make sure that we delivered that product. So there was never a stock out at the, at the retail facing uh, of the consumer. Oh, sorry. You go ahead, Doc. I'll hijack the conversation after you're done. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was, I was glad you were jumping in, but I, so... no, no. Well, there's this one, I want to talk about Sears, but you, maybe that's a little bit later in the conversation. <laughs> well, Sears, Sears, Sears Roebuck, the, uh, the, uh, the Sears catalog, that was the precursor of what Amazon actually exactly, is. Exactly. That's paper. what it was. Yeah. 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 Or we can do it now. I mean, I, I just, sorry, I, didn't, Doc, no, I, didn't, might as well. I didn't mean to jump on you there, but that, no, 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 that's it's good. Just, yeah, it's yeah. a really, it's a great point. That's what it, so, that's what it was. Yeah, so it, it's funny. So Doc Doc made a lot of notes, I should say, for this episode, which was actually really helpful and fantastic, and I think speaks to how excited we were about the conversation. Um, because again, this is this new the area that's to me it's quite fascinating because sure. it's again it's kind of it's shipping and logistics seems kind of mundane, but it's in fact unseen magic that that keeps the world spinning, right? right so, on. and and when when Doc in his notes, you know included something about the Sears catalog. So I'm, and my soul is that of a historian a bit. So, so the Sears catalog, I feel like, you know, admitting my age, I am old enough to remember the Sears catalog. I mean, it's a little fuzzy, but uh, my, my grandmother took me to Sears as a kid. They had popcorn. She always had the the Sears catalog. It was like a phone book. As I remember, (laughs) I want to, I don't know how, I mean, it must've been printed into the eighties or I wouldn't remember it, but, um, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, as you, it was the, the, the Amazon of its time. It was, it was yeah. where you went. It was practice. It was retail. Everybody bought everything from Sears, right? Yeah. It was this kind of massive operation. Um, but I, I think of it as kind of that I, that I lived in history because it does seem so antiquated and weird, you know, by today through modern eyes. Yeah. But, um, but I just, you know, I wanted to talk about it just a little bit okay. um, because, it is such an, an interesting, I don't know, parallel to me to to Amazon. It's like it, not just because of its its ubiquity. Well, actually, mostly because of its ubiquity. Because today, it's almost like if you talk about retail and shipping, you have to talk about Amazon. There's no you yep. can't avoid Amazon in the conversation. Impossible would have been the yep. same. Yep. So you know, so like, where does everybody else fit in? Where did everybody else fit in? Is there always is the nature of the the, the beast that there is always this kind of like semi-retail shipping monopoly i don't know i mean like is it worth talking about walmart.com ever like like how tell me tell me your thoughts well i mean one one thing that i can tell you that's visceral to this day is i almost kind of felt like when i was growing up that actually receiving the sears catalog and diligently going through it as a kid and dog and dog airing oh, pages yeah, you wanted, right? of what you wanted was actually yeah. sometimes more satisfying than actually receiving the the gifts that you chose or that you were actually <laughs> yes. you know uh, allowed you know to 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 get right because you know I started at the top with all the giant uh, you know train sets and and slot cars and you know all the expensive stuff 
which was absolutely not affordable in my household. And then, you know, had to accept the fact that there was a couple of GI Joes and, and maybe a monopoly board or a new board game or something like that. And so the anticipation of, of that is for some reason cannot be replicated, um, uh, from that, that, that tactile visceral flipping the pages versus going on and, and looking at Amazon or walmart.com to, to pick something and, and, and buy it. Um, but you can remember, you know, you had two, you had two things you could do. You could order it and you better order it eight weeks in advance. You know, when you got that, when you got that catalog probably at the end of October or in the first week of November, uh, get your order in soon or it was going to be stocked out right. or hope, hope and pray that they had it on the shelf in, in, in the store. So there was, there was, you know, a lot, it built a lot of anticipation, but I think it probably let a lot of people down as well, because there clearly was probably never enough stock, um, you know, to fulfill everybody's mm-hmm. uh, Christ, Christmas dreams in that. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we go back to about, you know, where we are now in the supply chain and, and all of the data that, that helps flow the product in, into the consumer is that, you know, their, their buying patterns. Yeah. They, they do have, you know, there are certain things that do sell out, but for the most part, um, if, if the 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 toy manufacturers the uh, consumer goods manufacturers they they kind of know their stuff now and and really get you the product that you want and 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 consistently do that because the pressure's on like you have to be able to uh, flow that product consistently mm-hmm. in the types of you know size colors and and dimensions that the consumer wants or you're just not going to be an Amazon partner. You're just not going to be able to work for, for Walmart. And, you know, don't give us any excuses that production was, um, you know, backed up because, you know, the, the days of having to put in an order eight months or 12 months before the season uh, in China to get it here in time for Christmas is, is over. You know, they're, they're still putting, putting orders and manufacturing things right now that are going to be in the consumer's hands by, you know, before Christmas. Um, and so that, that's absolutely driven by, you know, the, the, the power of information, the power mm-hmm. of, of data and the power of the consumer. Um, and so it's, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of interesting. And then on a flip side, and I can't remember what year this was, but I'll never forget watching the Super Bowl. And it was probably five or six, 2005 or six when UPS came out with, we love logistics, um, literally changed the supply chain and logistics world overnight because every CEO and every CFO that watched the Super Bowl the next day went into their organization and said, Hey, this getting stuff from point A to point B looks really easy. Like UPS can just do it overnight. They, you know, it's, it's, you know, just press the easy button and uh, they love logistics and they're saying that they can do this. Why can't we? And, you know, there were so many organizations that were not prepared for that, even though their president and CFO thought it could happen. And the best part is, is UPS portrayed that they had all these ships, all these planes, all these people, uh, all, all of this um, established supply chains from all over the world, which was a complete misnomer. They had to go to partners. They had to go to vendors. They had to compile information and share and collaborate to get stuff to move from point A to point B. So it forced everybody to really love logistics. And, it, and that's why 20 years ago, Doc, when we first met, you know, 
I, I don't think anybody would have been breaking down my door to have a discussion like this. Um, now <laughs> it's, it it, yeah, I mean, I think it made it sexy and, and it, and it elevated the consumer and it elevated, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the folks that aren't in the business world to, to force, um, consumer goods, um, you know, car manufacturers, you name it to, to be a little bit more aware about how they get their things to market. So there's something that you said in there about the data, and I and this is what I talked about before. Just there's so much data being collected, right? And 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 we we can talk about the privacy implications or the stalkeriness of it all, but there's but it does in fact help inform all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I think about sometimes, and and I think about it typically in 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 terms of marketing or advertising campaigns where a brand will get something incredibly wrong and i always think there is no excuse like how did you mess this up so badly because you you stalk us all like you know you should know how people are going to react and then you know and they make a massive misstep and it you know and their sales drop or whatever They're like how did they not know um like back when new coke happened you know they didn't know but today like how could that possibly happen um and and you see it occasionally in marketing campaigns, and I always find that surprising. And but I wonder if that if you see the same, uh, if you're ever kind of shocked where somebody gets some inventory thing just so wrong, and you wonder, but you know how could you have you know we have all of this data, how could you have gotten it wrong? How did you produce, you know, uh, eight billion too many blue widgets when you should have known that everybody wanted yellow widgets or something? Mm. Do you ever see stuff like that happen? Well, I, I think you. You, you see it all the time, and I think it it goes back to the you know the age old challenge of you know some leaders of organizations are so removed from the consumers or from the customers they act that they actually um, you know sell things to that they they blindly go down um, certain concepts, certain designs, certain color choices that just simply they like, but the consumer has absolutely no, no interest in. And, you know, we see it all the time where, um, you know, organizations will build things in with all kinds of market data and all kinds of, uh, of support information that says this is going to be a bestseller and, and it falls flat. And, and that, and that really is, again, I think organizations and specific leaders of those organizations that view things as they want to view the world, as opposed to view it as, the world really is and um you know you can't you can't make up for that i mean if you're if, if you end up going out and and building a bunch of blue widgets for for an economy that all all they want really is is green and yellow you're you know you're you're not in a good position and i think you really have to be much more cognizant of of the buying patterns that that organizations like walmart costco uh, uh, Amazon and, and the like can can give you, and and listen to them, and 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 use that information as opposed to filtering it through, you know, your eyes. Like I like I said with the UPS, we love logistics. You know, the, these these CEOs just thought it was easy. Well, we you know we, we can do logistics if UPS can do logistics, but that's just not the truth. So I want to ask about. I want to go a little deeper in what happened with um, with UPS because. I remember when UPS was the trucks you saw on the ground. They were like a mm-hmm. ground company. It assumed they were brown. Those with dirt, they're a ground company. And mm-hmm. um, and the Sky Company was, well, DHL was known as that, but kind of in a B2B way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the big one, of course, is FedEx. You know, Fred Smith's yep. discovery invention of of, of hub based overnight um, movement of goods. But suddenly, and it seemed like there was no friction involved at all. UPS is in exactly the same business and maybe even doing more um, because they were all over the ground and they were all over the sky and they had these hubs. Like, oh, they got this hub in Louisville. They got this hub in another. They knew how to compete. But what I got from what you just said a few minutes ago was they actually did it by cooperating with a whole lot of other entities and, and not being like a sole a monopolist. And that, that's right. an interesting thing to me. Like there's a, that there is to the flow business, so many participants that have to cooperate in order to operate. Mm-hmm. It can't, I mean, Amazon sort of stands out in the middle of it, like Sears did way back when. Sure. Um, but in some ways I gather they're a little bit anomalous in the sense that the way flow works is a cooperative undertaking by countless companies that, by necessity, what logistics means is you're cooperating. Is it? It's it's not just right. I'm in charge of all of this, and I've got the great control panel back here, yep. and I'm seeing everything that's going on. It's more like I'm just the liver here, and I'm taking care of some of this. But the spleen over there is doing its thing, and the pancreas yep. is doing its thing, and we're moving stuff around. But we're not, and none of us is, is in charge of all of this. Right, and and I'll, I'll get I'll give you another analogy since we're talking about the the uh, Sears catalog, um, mm-hmm. Super Bowl Super Bowl two. You know, Joe Namath guaranteed the, mm-hmm. the victory against the Colts, yeah. and after and then after he wins, you know, all of the uh, all all of the pundits are saying, "How did you do it? You know, how how did you carry the team on your back and 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 guarantee this victory?" And you know, he sits back and he goes, "Hey, look, I'm just the straw that stirs the drink." There's all these, there's all these great ingredients of this team. And I I just have the honor of getting to mix, mix it up um, for a great cocktail that that's a a successful cocktail. And, and that's kind of what UPS did and and I'll give it to them. And I, and I think the, the, the support of that is look how long it took the United States postal service who had the best, most (laughs) extensive network to the ontological level of every consumer in the United States, but couldn't get their act together to deliver something in a timely manner. And it wasn't until Amazon and, you know, um, UPS and FedEx started saying, Hey, look, you guys have this network. Let us work with you. Stop keeping us away. And then that's why all of a sudden you started seeing, you know, uh, postal trucks making deliveries on Sunday. On Sunday. Yeah, it's great. And, and, and it's because it's UPS and FedEx and DHL yeah. driven by Amazon, driven by Costco, driven by Walmart to make those deliveries. And that's to your point, um, uh, Doc, it's it's 100% uh, spot on. They were forced to collaborate because they were – for lack of a better term, losing their ass financially, uh, efficiency, um, you know, pub, you know, public perception, all of those things. And I think, you know, they're finally starting to understand that they, they have a power, a powerful tool to keep delivering the mail, keep, keep the, the American, you know, people connected, but also start, you know, making some money and being able to, you know, 
cover their pensions, cover, you know, cover their employees and giving people an opportunity to, you know, to grow and develop into supply chain and logistics, maybe not, you know, not, you know, in the open, in the open market, but as a public servant. And I think it's great, but that didn't happen until what? Uh, for lucky, it was 10 years ago, but probably more like five or six, yeah, eight, yeah. eight years ago when they finally just broke down and started looking at themselves like, I can't believe we have this powerful, powerful network, this powerful, powerful group of people uh, and, 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 and um, you know, mechanical and, and real estate and real estate. <laughs> exactly. Just, to, to, yeah. to move all these things. And we're not using it because, you know, we're the the United States Postal Service, and you know we're supposed to deliver letters and packages Monday so, through Saturday, begrudgingly. I, so here, there are kind of two questions in one here, two topics in one, um, but they're connected. The first is that back after the Clue Train Manifesto came out, and I was on the speaking circuit, I happened to be at a, a retail conference in Lucerne, Switzerland, where. Um, a spe- another speaker I got to know a little bit at the thing, which surprised me because uh, he was the CEO of Walmart as a guy named Lee Scott at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He had yeah. just opened up uh, Walmart in Germany, which, by the way, in the long run turned out to be a failure, I think. But n- nonetheless, the backstory on him before he went on stage, it was explained that he got to be the CEO of Walmart because he was recruited. He was recruited because... He was the CEO of Yellow Freight. And, Yellow Freight, yeah. And yeah, and it was, I want to talk about them. And But what happened, this was back in the 90s, okay? He was the CEO of Yellow Freight. And um, and uh, Walton himself um, called him in, said, we really, we want you to be the CEO of this place. And he said, I wouldn't be the CEO of anything that takes 60 to 90 days to pay their bills. And which apparently Walmart had a reputation for is I want to pay our bills right away. And then Walton said to him, uh, great, you fix it. And suppose he came in and he fixed that. Now, <laughs> 20, 25 years later, Yellow Freight's out of business. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering about are two things. One is what happened to float? Because that's what that stuff was. So Walmart back then was getting float. They were getting float on, on, uh, on uh, on their payables because the dollar was going to be worth more in two or three months, worth less in two or three months than it is right now. And they were like booking on inflation. Mm-hmm. Inflation has gone up and down. It's been high lately. It's been getting down to a normal rate now. Um, I'm wondering how in the logistics world, that kind of practice, that kind of approach to money and the flow of money, because you can flow money instantly now. So saying, geez, I, I, we can't work that fast. It's going to take a while for this to work through a bookkeeping system. Lousy excuse because you're busy moving goods on an instantaneous basis. Mm-hmm. That that excuse for float is gone or almost gone or should be gone. And also related or perhaps unrelated is Yellow Freight just went out of business. You know, of course, Lee Scott has long since uh, um, retired. Oops. That's by scam likely calling me, and I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> oh God, I don't want to answer it. So, oh geez, here I can turn it off on that one. You can yeah. just hit the power button, and I'll mute it. Oh, the power button will do it. Well, it, it's the yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, anyway, so that's <laughs> so yeah. Go ahead. That may even be like a punctuation mark. Well, 
couple couple of things. So float. I, I mean, for for me, it 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 seems that all organizations now are trying to push out payment terms to sixty or ninety days because they're not getting paid in thirty or sixty days, right? So everyone is is trying to leverage everybody else's money to. Um, you know, keep their, keep their business afloat. And, and I think just as, um, you know, we talk about consistent flow uh, of the product through, through the supply chain, I think the consistent flow um, of, of money through that supply chain is, is going to be in line. And we have to take a, a real strong look at why organizations that even, you know, leverage their, their bulk and their strength and everything to kind of squeeze out the the last dime, um, you know, for their, you know, for their manufacturing partners, um, some of them are, are, are going away. I mean, even yellow, like, like you said, yellow got built out and still, and still failed. Um, but it goes back to who you partner with in, mm. in, in, in creating a mutually beneficial platform not a zero sum game. Um, we probably up until, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, negotiations was always a zero sum game. You know, I win, you lose. Uh, and especially from a fiscal perspective, you know, the buying terms, um, you know, whether you've got letters of credit, whether you, you know, have banking relationships, um, or whether you leverage your receivables to, you know, finance your, your business through, through a bank. Um, it, it, it is all about how you, um, use, use the, the, the collaboration in the, in the vested collaboration. And when I mean vested, that, that financial, um, vesting in, in, in the supply chain where we're going to, we're going to deliver your product consistently and we're going to deliver it without it being damaged and it's going to be on time when you want it mm. and it's going to be related to when the consumer wants it so you're not you're not sitting on inventories for 6 to 8 months or even a year you're sitting on if you're if if you're Walmart now if you're you know dollar general family dollar dollar tree you know they're tur- they're turning their their inventories you know more than 12 times a year I mean, that's fast moving product that is pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, it's not like they're selling, you know, $500, you know, shoes. They're selling $1.99 candy. They're selling $1.99, um, you know, float toys and things like that. And you have to move that product through. So it's really finding the organizations that will not zero sum game you, you know, not debate, wow. you know, the, the, you know, I win because I, I, I get to hold my money longer than you do. And, and, you know, we're seeing it, you know, you look at an organization like I represent now, Hapag Lloyd, been around for 175 years, you know, started moving things from point A to point B, B with sales, mm-hmm. sales on ships, right? Carts and things like that. And there's no way, um, but they're not the largest carrier in the world. You know, we're, we're in a top five, top six every year, but, you know, we're not racing out there with the Mediterranean shipping and Maersk, my old company, and trying to build all these ships. What they're trying to build is relationships, and they're trying to build vested relationships where, hey, 
we're going to give you we're we're going to give you exactly what you need on a port to port basis. And guess what? You're not going to get terms more than 45 days. You've got to you've got to pay for that. But what we'll do is we'll give you a good price point. We'll 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 give you the support that you need. We'll give you the visibility, and and you open up that transparency. And I think once organizations, you know, and we kind of talked about this a little bit. I, I think you know there's an intimacy now between organizations that they're just used not to be because you know when you were a robber baron, you know you just negotiated you know and pounded on the table until you broke somebody into submission, and then you wonder why they only lasted you know one season. Uh, because they weren't making any money and they were trying to chase, you know, the, you know, the, the big relationship with Walmart. And I think Walmart got smart. They, they, they basically said, Hey, we're not going to just hold on, um, you know, to, to your money and, and squeeze you uh, because, because we're the biggest, you know, game in town. We, we've got to be, we've got to be fair. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, I, I know it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, the, the real world when we start talking about, you know, uh, collaboration, intimacy, empathy, and, and the like on on organizations uh, working with each other. But the ones that do that, they're still around. Um, I, I don't really have any information, um, you know, particular to the leadership, uh, the you know, the, the last leadership of Yellow or some of these other organizations that have gone belly up. But traditionally, in those old world, you know, businesses, they're you know, they're they're hardcore negotiators and. You know, they thought they, they, they thought that they could just be that way all the time as opposed to, to opening up and finding ways to give a little to get a little. I, I, I love this it, it, intimacy among corporations. They, they would have to be. I, it, it's sort of there's there's some game theory involved here, maybe the red mm-hmm. white game or the, yeah. you know, where where everybody involved sees, wait a minute, we all do better if we're all doing for each other. Right. You know, there's a there, there's a sum that is more than a sum that comes that. that Benefits from cooperation rather than uh, yeah. competition. In fact, that's kind of where evolutionary theory has been going lately. Not that it was right. not in Darwin. Darwin did see cooperation. He wasn't sure that there was survival of whoever beat the others, but rather that there's this co- inherently cooperative um, system in nature that that you know seems competitive in some ways, but really isn't uh, yeah. at a deeper level. Right on. And you can, for lack of a better term, beat the living daylights out of everybody, every partner, every organ. Well, you can't even call them partner. Just beat the living daylights out of every supplier. Um, and then you shouldn't be surprised that there's none left when they don't have any money to maintain their, you know, maintain their own business. Um, you know, you've got to see. And, and I think that's the, the power of data. Um, and that's the power of sharing data and having transparency is people now can see, man, I'm not paying these guys for 90 days. That's basically, I'm, you know, I'm basically, you know, killing them for a season and they're hoping that I'm going to pay, you know, the, the, the the next season. And if I don't, if somebody else gives me a better deal and I go away, they're out, they're they're not going to be able to keep up, um, you know, whether you have a strong balance sheet or whether you have, you know, somebody that has deep pockets, but sooner or later, even the richest individuals are, are, are not going to keep paying, you know, for a loser's game um, in production, manufacturing, and the like. I, I have one more quick question, and Catherine's letting us know because we're getting toward the end here. Um, what happens I to could, return? What happens to ahead. returns? I mean, there's so many things that get returned, yeah. and 
it's sort of a mystery to me. How, how does it, does it flow back or does it go to the landfill or does it go to Goodwill or what happens to returns? Well, to, uh, you know, that's a great question, Doc. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to convey it in the, in the time that we have, uh, because there are, you know, one of my uh, good colleagues back in the day uh, from DHL, Chris Jarvis, he's been living in the returns world for the last 10 years. And he's a great guy to, to, very well talk about this um, someday. Uh, he was he was in logical logistics as well, um, and uh, you know for for me what happens is it depends. So like a uh, perfect example is you know we were buying uh, my my wife tried to get me these stone. Um, candle, uh, you know, essentially it would hold a flame. You could, you know, it's a stone with a little base and you put some, um, you know, emulsion in there and you can light it and it's like an outdoor torch, but you can have it in your house. They're really, really heavy and they have three pieces. And three times last Christmas, we got three deliveries of these. This was a gift for me that came without all of the parts. And basically Pam went to Amazon and said, Hey, you know, I took a picture and said, Hey, I'm not getting the whole, the whole thing. Each time they said, keep it. Don't send it back. It's too heavy. Um, clearly yeah. we don't, we don't have the product to, you know, to supplement it, to make it a viable sale. We don't want to restock it. Um, so it goes back to all this chaos of putting things back on the shelf to have somebody pick it. So some things are not returnable. You know, and these folks that now are buying, you know, five or six of the same object in different sizes or different colors and mix and match and then send it back through free returns is absolutely, you know, destroying online retailers because they are spending more money getting things returned and, and restocking them and refurbishing them to sell again, which then is a season off. So they're going to have to sell it at a discount anyways. They just say, keep it. Uh, it's che- it's cheaper to um, just send you a, a, a new product, um, and then when you start talking about bicycles and some of these, you know, uh, you know, uh, microwaves, um, you know, cuisine yards, things things in the kitchen and things like that, it becomes even more of a of, of a challenge. So, you know, returns. Um, what they're doing now is they're retrofitting old um, malls uh, that that are shutting down um, because there's nobody's going there for retail and they're basically turning them into return centers, which then refurbish it, the, the product there and then sell it at a discount or move it right to, you know, goodwill or, 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 or the like. And so they're, they're actually giving new life to some of these, you know, dinosaur um, outdoor and indoor malls that um, don't have any consumers anymore. And they're turning them into return sites and then, um, you know, cheap retail uh, sales of return product. So they're helping retrofit and find, you know, find a little longevity in, in, in a piece of real estate that's been long dead. Well, this is great. We should just return to the, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to the beginning here and just uh, uh, realize we've got just an enormous amount left to talk about. I've got a long list here, but it's, I, hey, I can you, come back. You, I, yeah, you, you know, you want to do it. Yeah, and you've, done, you've done what I, you know, what I, what I hope to, uh, which is I, I learned something uh, pretty big that it's really a flow business, that there is empathy within it, that it's a positive yeah. something. Yeah. It's, that's, that's a very interesting thing about business I don't think is well understood. Yeah. So I, thanks for, thanks for being here. No problem. I, I, I love this. I love, you know, talking about this stuff and, and I really appreciate the fact that, 
you know, you, you guys did some, you, you know, did some research, asked some great questions and really challenged, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to take some notes over here and make sure that I kept up and uh, uh, happy, to, happy to do this again. And, and Doc, if you ever want to collaborate on any other platform, uh, you mm-hmm. as well, Catherine, um, you know, reach out. Um, this, 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 is, uh, this is great stuff for me and I really enjoy it. So thank you very much. Yeah for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit and to collaborate, you know, and, and be transparent and, and, and uh, show a little empathy towards, uh, you know, so your, your, uh, your listener base. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you to everybody who has listened and until next time. <laughs>